2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 is where we're going to pick it up. I'm glad you're all here tonight, into the summer. I was wondering, you know, we don't have junior high, so I'm like, are the junior high parents going to make it out here? Because, like, the kids don't have anything. Uh, I, I think some of you did. <laughs> Second Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Do you think that David worked all the hardships of his life into his personal business plan? <laughs> you know, something like this. Let's see. Get anointed as a boy, right? Go back to tending sheep. By 17, slay a giant. Then learn to multitask as a shepherd, a, a minstrel, an armor bearer, if possible for a completely unhinged boss. Around 20, run for your life as your boss loses it. Live as an outcast, targeted, run down, hunted. Live in enemy territory for a time. That should be on the list. Uh, lose face, lose relationship, lose fellowship, lose friends. And, and finally, get anointed to rule as king for one tribe. Not the promised entirety of Israel, just Judah. And do that for seven and a half years. Great plan. You know, I was thinking our, our plans for our lives, if you ever have sat down and done a goal list, I remember Cheryl and I had a class in college where we had to write out our goals. I didn't even know what a goal was. I mean, I did, basketball, hoop, that, you know, that was a goal, but I didn't understand. And we had to write out our five-year goal and our 10-year goal, and I don't think I hit a one of them. But our plans don't usually include subheadings, like in five years, I'd like to be married and have some tragedy. You know, within, within 10, I'd like to have a degree and be in business, but I'd like for that business to go under. Um, we don't normally include sorrow and loss and pain and difficulty and hardship. In fact, I would think that most of our blueprints are pretty black and white rather than black and blue. We don't think in terms of planning out the pain, you know, but what's amazing, what's remarkable is God knows every nuance of the plan. So the plan that he has for you, for me, for our lives, the, the plan that he's got laid out and, and all it really takes from you for me is to say, okay, I'll do that. I'll walk that plan. But God has every aspect of it down. He knows what it's gonna take in your life, which is different than what it's gonna take in my life to get us to the desired haven, to the final goal, he gets it. Example, when everything seemed like it was completely lost, not for David, but for Israel itself, when his people in 586 BC were in Babylonian exile and it seemed as though the kingdom was absolutely finished, it was no more, he sent a letter through Jeremiah to his people. And in that letter, Jeremiah 29, 11, many people know Jeremiah 29, 11. They don't realize that it's part of a letter that God's sending to a people who are now out of their country. They've lost everything. They're exiled. And he says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. I guarantee you there were people in the crowd as this letter was being read out to them who were like, a little late for that. 
Yeah, you missed that one, Lord. Plans for a future and a hope? Don't you know what's happened? Didn't you see the temple burned down? Don't you know we've lost everything? And now we're in this babbling country with these people whose language we don't even understand? He says, yeah, I know the plans I have for you. He's looking ahead. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. See, the thing is, my plans never go through Babylon. My plans are never in the wilderness. In fact, the wilderness is rarely on my radar. Philistia is right out. My plans are always very clean. God's plans include the messiness. And while my plans are blissfully oblivious, his plans know the nuances. He knows the joys and he knows the sorrows. He knows the delights. He knows the pain. He knows the hurt and he knows the healing, all of which go into the good work of perfecting a person. The work that grows us and leads us, trains us for and transports us to his coming kingdom. He knows the plans he has for us. And he is at work, that good work of perfecting, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, until the day of Christ Jesus. So until that day, any expectation that it's gonna be smooth sailing is missing the fact that God's got a bigger plan than the one that we can see. And then the sometimes very simplified, easy, happy-go-lucky plans that we make for our lives, the Lord says, well, you know, there are some things that are gonna be part of this plan and you're not gonna like them. And if I told you ahead of time, you wouldn't go that way, but you need to go that way. You need to experience these things. Now, anytime I talk about this, I know there are some who, who would say, my entire life has been a big disaster. And you're telling me God has plans for me? And I think I told you this last week, if not the week before, if you feel like your entire life has been a disaster, he's got big plans for you. <laughs> you must be extra special. You must be even more beloved because he's got something big out ahead and you may not even experience it in this life. We know that the fathers, the patriarchs, they didn't experience what was promised to them. They will. Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12, I believe it is, end of chapter 11 going into 12, that they didn't get what was promised so that it would be fulfilled with us all together. Sometimes you don't see the end result of the plan in this life. Now, God has a blueprint. If, if you'll receive it, if you'll accept it, he has a blueprint, I don't. I don't know what the blueprint says. I would like sometimes to have it. There are times where I've said, Lord, if you would just unroll a few weeks of it for me so I can see. But we have something else instead. Second Peter chapter one, verse three, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And David knew that much. He didn't know what the whole plan was. He knew he had been anointed at 17. He knows now by 2 Samuel chapter three, he's been anointed a second time now for the house of Judah to be their king, but the majority of Israel is still under the rule of a son of Saul, Ishbosheth, you may recall. He knows that much, but he doesn't know much more. What David knows is God has a plan. In fact, 
David knows to rely on the plan of God as given at that point, which really wasn't a whole lot more than Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But David said, and I think I wrote down up there, Psalm 119, verses one through 105. Okay, I'm not gonna do all of those right now. But there are a bunch of them. Listen to these. David wrote, Psalm 119, verse nine, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Verse 16, I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Verse 25, revive me. Verse 28, strengthen me according to your word. Verse 38, establish your word to me. Verse 67, I keep your word, I wait for your word. Verse 89, your word is settled in heaven. Verse 105, see how quickly we did that? Your word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. It's a lamp and a light. You'll know that verse and it is a light and it is everything we need for life and godliness. It's all we need to follow. We may not have the blueprint, but we have the word of God and all you gotta do is take him at his word. That's our part. I'll receive it, Lord. By the word of God, verse one tells us, David grew steadily stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker continually. By God's word, God made that promise. God told David, this is where this is going. You are going to be king. David knows this. It's really all he knows. But David's house grew stronger not because he kept God's word. Read on, verse two. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Achinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second was Kiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third was Absalom, son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagit. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. The sixth, Ithraim. By David's wife, Eglah, these were born to David at Hebron. There you go. David following God's plan. And no. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves and you may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moses wrote this. This is in Deuteronomy. This is 450 or so years longer before David. This word was written and kept. This scroll was available People knew it. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So that's the word of God. Here's the plan, David. Here's what you need to do. I want you to be king. Well, what does a king do? Well, a king doesn't multiply horses, wives, or gold. Otherwise, he's gonna lose his position even as he loses himself. What does David do? He's anointed king in Hebron, and he has now six wives. 
Not including, by the way, Michal, unless you agree with the rabbis. Now, this is interesting to me. At the very end there, it says that uh, the sixth, verse five, was Ithraim by David's wife, Egla, which is an unfortunate name. Those were born to David at Hebron. And some think because it says by David's wife, Egla, that, that the David's wife is added there, that this Egla actually is the first wife, the premier wife of David. Well, that would be Michal, Saul's daughter. That was his first wife. So there are some rabbis who say Egla and Michal are the same woman. Either way, it's unfortunate because Egla means heifer. What dad names his daughter heifer I'm not even gonna get into that, but, but David may have justified himself. He's, he's there in Hebron, and he begins to do what all the kings did. This is not uh, a unique to Israel. This is a king of the nations thing. You multiply wives. You get wives of, of foreign governments, of, of king. You get other kings' daughters. You give your daughters to other kings, and this was part of how peace treaties were made completely unfair to women, so there's no question about that. And by the way, the Bible's not saying this is okay. The Bible's just reporting what happened. Doesn't justify it. In fact, like I said, we went back to Deuteronomy 17. That's where the Lord's at with this. Don't do this. David does it anyway. So the Bible tells us that's what he did. It's one of the things I love about this word is it just tells the truth. This is what was going on. Now, David may have justified himself at this time. He may have thought to himself, I am not multiplying wives. I'm just adding them. No one starts out planning to multiply sin, to multiply trouble, but forgive me, it all adds up. <laughs> it all adds up, and this all added up to trouble for David. It would be bad trouble. Now, in case you're curious, Amnon means faithful. So his son Amnon, name is faithful. Chiliab means picture of his dad. Absalom means my father, my Abba is peace. Adonijah means my Lord is Yah or Yahweh. Uh, Shephatiah, Yahweh has judged. Ithraim, for the profit or benefit of the people. I mean, you listen to these names, faithful, picture of his dad, my father is peace, my Lord is Yahweh, Yahweh has judged for the profit and the benefit of the people and combine them all and they at least imply a great sense of hope. It's David's house, I mean, this is the deal. He's God's choice for king. So his sons, the sons of his house, this is hope for Israel. But if you know the story of David, you know that sin gets in and messes up the strongest of houses. Your house, my house. There's one calculation that Jesus asks of you and asks of me. He says in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me can't be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This is Jesus' style, by the way. Think about the decision you're making. He, he wasn't out there manipulating people into following him. He was actually doing the opposite. He was saying, look, if you follow me, you need to count the cost. You need to think about what it means. I'm not gonna force you to do anything. But understand that following me comes with some inherent costs. 
How do we we count those costs and then finish well? Ultimately, we trust that he's got the blueprints. We we believe him for his word and we let let God be concerned with the nitty gritty. So those hard times and those difficult things and those hurts and those pains that are written into the plan that are part of the deal that we don't know about him, let him worry about that. We just need to follow Jesus. Just follow him. As we go through this, David's not gonna do the best things. He's already multiplying wives. He's gonna do some things that seem not inherently bad, but kind of political. We're gonna see him playing the game a little bit. Understand that David's best calculations are made by faith. In spite of the little things that he gets into and the things that he does wrong, and he'll do some big things wrong further into his story in this part of the book. But, but for tonight, in spite of these little things, what verses one through five and all these wives have to do with it, what they remind us is that the steady increase of David's house is not because David was a perfect man. The steady increase of his house was because God promised it and David believed him. This is something I think the world has trouble comprehending. I just believe him? Yeah. God promised it. Do you believe him? That's the deal. That's why God moves and works. Not because you've proven yourself. Have a Rick, I thought I had to take up my cross and, and follow after him. Jesus is saying, yeah, there's gonna be consequence. There's gonna be challenge. There's gonna be difficulty. But your part in all of it. Trust me, I'm gonna get you there. Trust me, David, I'm gonna get you to the kingdom. Trust me, I'm gonna get you there. So, Don't forget this whole thing is far greater than David. David's kingdom is really not about David, it's about the Lord. It's about the son of David, as we've been saying, about Jesus. And this is far greater than you or me. Read on, verse six. It came about while there was war between the house of Saul, this all of northern Israel, and the house of David, that is in Judah in the south, that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Abner is not the king. You may recall that Ishbosheth son of Saul, Abner, the commander of the army, made Ishbosheth king of Israel. He didn't have the right. This was a military coup, you could say. Abner said, I want you to be king. And he made Ishbosheth the king because Abner knew he could control him. Abner knew Ishbosheth was weak. He was a puppet. So Abner made him king, and all the strength was in Abner, all of the, uh, of the future. He, he was the one. He pulled the strings of the puppet which was Ishbosheth. And in verse seven, it says, now Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Why indeed? It's one of those things we read in the Bible and go, why does this have to be in the Bible? <laughs> what is going on here? So you've got Ishbosheth the king. His father Saul had several concubines, and Abner now, commander of the army, goes in and sleeps with one of the concubines. Ishbosheth finds out about it, and he is not happy. Not because he's offended that the woman was taken advantage of or slept with. That, that didn't bother him at all. In fact, ladies, forgive me just for a moment here. Concubines were not wives, they were surrogates. That was basically the role of a concubine. Remember Abraham and Hagar? Abraham and Sarah couldn't have a child. God told Abraham, you're gonna have a son. So Abraham thought, well, 
Let's make it happen. And so he pulled in the maid, Hagar, to be his concubine and slept with her and had a child. This was not God's will. Well, Abner now is doing this thing with this concubine. You also need to understand in political circles of the Middle East of the day, doing this was a power play. This was not about sleeping with her as much as beginning to exert power because the one who had the concubines of the previous king, he was the one who was declaring himself to be the new authority. Abner is making his move. These concubines, they, they, were, they were chattel. They were used to be passed around among kings, among rulers, and, and for peace treaties and the like. Her name, ironically, is Rizpah. Rizpah is this concubine. You know what Rizpah means? It's perfect. Her name means pavement. She is pavement. They are walking all over her. She's a pawn in this game. This was Middle Eastern politics. Again, not just Israel. Israel was practicing the politics of the nations all around them. And so Rizpah is getting walked on. She's pavement on the road to Abner's political campaign. And he's making his move. But again, the Bible is not endorsing the behavior. It's reporting on the behavior. The transgender movement is doing fine all by itself endorsing women as pavement. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is something I wish, I wish our world could hear. You want to get rid of all the unfairness? You want to get rid of all the division? You want to get rid of the mistreatment of, of people? All are one in Christ Jesus. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. Sisters, aren't you thankful for Jesus? I mean, he's, he's the one who lifted this off. We've continued to struggle with it in humanity ever since and before. Jesus is the one who broke the curse that caused all this contention between men and women. He's the one who made it happen. Paul says, so in him, we're all one. And by the way, speaking to brothers, husbands, we have a plan. We do know this part of the blueprint for our lives. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.29 says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And Paul's lifting up this as the example. At the end of that passage, you may recall, he says, by the way, this mystery is great of marriage, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Jesus and the church, Jesus and his people are the picture, the groom and the bride of, of marriage that we have in our world and the whole purpose of marriage is to reflect that. Which means husbands, you need to treat your wives the way Jesus has treated the church. He gave himself up. Ultimate sacrifice. Put the church first. That's our calling. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Since she's a woman, no offense, women, no offense. But seriously, <laughs> I probably shouldn't share this. When I say that, Cheryl starts to shake her head, no, please don't share this. 
But Chris was cracking up. He's trying to comprehend this idea, and he's very into soccer, you know, and he's looking at women's soccer, and he's looking at men's soccer, and he even said the other day, what if Messi just decided he wanted to be a woman and, a woman and go, went and joined the women's, you know, National Soccer League? What would happen? He'd wipe them out. No offense again, ladies, but he, I mean, you can't parallel. Probably shouldn't have said that. But this woman, listen, this woman is a pawn. Husbands, your wives are no pawns. Men, our sisters, are our fellow saints. And at the end of the day, in this divine story, there's a wonderful end. We won't even see it tonight, but we're gonna see something. Rizpah is gonna have a son. Rizpah's son is named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is going to dine at David's table for the rest of his life. There will be great compassion handed out to this woman who was pavement to Abner. Well, verse eight, then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. This is so what people do when they get defensive. He's trying to throw it back in Ishbosheth's face. Ishbosheth is just questioning, why did you do this? And Abner rages. And it's further proof that Abner actually had taken Saul's concubine and, and he lay with her in this sociosexual political power move. And Ishbosheth calls him out and Abner just gets up in his face, verse nine. May God do to Abner, he continues, and more also, if the, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan, far north, even to Beersheba, far south. And he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. Abner pulls the strings. Abner is the authority. He's the power, not Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is weak. Abner here, this is remarkable to me. He is so full of himself, he can't even hear his own words. Did you hear what he just said? He's making all these moves for his own power, and he says in verse 9 May God do so to Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him. He's known all along David's supposed to be king. When he made Ishbosheth king over northern Israel, Abner knew word had been out that David was supposed to be king over Israel. And yet he's working against this. And now, now all of a sudden he's saying, the Lord has sworn, just as the Lord has sworn to David, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help out. I'm, I'm shifting sides now. Abner, by the way, only quotes scripture when it benefits him. He only calls on the name of the Lord when it fits his strategy, but man, he gives himself away. He knew David was supposed to be king. So verse 12, then Abner sent messengers to David in his place. At this point, Abner realizes Ishbosheth doesn't have the strength. No one in Israel has the strength, but David does, and he begins to think this through. I can work my way into that administration. I'll, I'll, I'll hand Israel to David on a silver platter. And then I will be one of the power players in this kingdom. He sent messengers to David in his place saying, whose is the land? 
Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. And David said, good. I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you. Namely, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. I want my wife back. Let's see. Ahinoam, Abigail, Meaka. He's got, uh, he's got Hagit, Abital, Egla. Doesn't he have enough wives? But he wants Michael, Michal. He wants her back for himself. This is political intrigue now. It's deepening because each side is jockeying for position. This is not about a love relationship with David and Michal. David is, is actually establishing his authority. Now, now, with David, I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt. He, he is going kind of soul man. He is thinking this through and he is playing politics in wanting me call back. But think about it. This is a wise move. If I can get her back and we have a son, that will unify Judah and Israel. That'll bring us all together. So it actually is a really good political move. If you don't like politics, then you're not gonna like this move. But it is a good, a wise, a, a sly move. But now... Michal, like Rizpah, is pavement. Now she's a pawn in this game. And by the way, Saul is the one who made her a pawn. You may recall back when Saul gave Michal to David, he did it for political reasons. And so he's the one who first established, first started this mess. So whether or not David actually missed or loved wifey number one, Michal, he's probably more concerned with the consolidation of power, as I said, unifying Israel. What are Abner and David doing? They are trying to help God with the establishment of the kingdom. We can do these things and we can make it happen. And it is so easy for Christians to think we're doing it for Jesus, we're getting the job done for him, we're doing it our way when really we're just in the way. And there's far too much politicization, what's the word? Too much making politics from Christianity, from evangelicals, from churches. I'm not, now, I, I always get myself into trouble when I talk about this. I'm not saying you don't vote. I'm not saying you don't take a stand for what is right, for what is morally good. All of that, I absolutely support. But when we think we can work the angles, when we can play the politics, and thus we can establish the kingdom of God for him, we're out of line. We're out of, he's gonna bring the kingdom. This is his job. Ours is to trust and to follow and we can very easily hinder the work of God because we don't heed the word of God. How do we know the difference? How do we know if we're hindering versus heeding? I'm gonna give you uh, five things tonight to jot down. Uh, five principles of the kingdom way. I told Eva, she goes, oh, I like that title, the kingdom way. And I said, well, the five principles are all negatives. I'm basically gonna give you five things tonight that are not the kingdom way. Number one, if it runs over people, it's not the kingdom way. If it runs over people, it is not the kingdom way. Relational carnage does not establish the will of God. 
That's everything from force-feeding the gospel to someone to, to marching on people with anger and vitriol to, to force a certain way. Man, if I have to crawl over broken lives to make something happen, that's not the kingdom way. That is not what Jesus did. When we watch Jesus in his life, when we just, man, just read through the gospels, who did he walk on to accomplish his work? Nobody. He actually made the lame to walk and helped the blind to see and gave the deaf back their hearing. This is, this is Jesus' way. The kingdom way doesn't run people over. I have heard pastors say, and, and honestly, it really sickens me. Boy, get out of the way. We're going here, and if you're not going with us, you're getting run over. I've heard pastors say that to their church congregants. I heard one pastor make a comment that there's gonna be bodies strewn behind us when we're finished. And he was proud of that comment. I'm like, that is not the kingdom way. Sadly, the world looks at the church and often thinks, oh, that's, that's those church people. Hateful, spiteful, intolerant. That's not the kingdom way. We don't run over people. Jesus said a new commandment I give you. You all know this, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what makes it new. You love like I loved. Love one another. You, all, you Bible students know love one another. That was an old commandment. Jesus said, I'm gonna make it new. I'm gonna add something. You love the way I love. He loved us all the way to the cross. That's the love of Jesus. Paul says, oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. Romans 13, verse eight. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 1 Peter 1, Peter says, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, for a sincere brotherly love, Philadelphia. He says, fervently love one another, agape love, unconditionally love one another from the heart. And of course, John said in 1 John 3, 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. By the way, in the positive, that is the kingdom way. But running people over is not the kingdom way. And we see Abner doing it, and we see even David doing it to a degree here. The Lord's plans are gonna be established, but not by my hit and runs, <laughs> his plans, he heals. And even when I have hurt, doesn't mean my hurts are his way of doing things, he heals the hurts. He knows they're gonna come, but he is there to heal and to establish his kingdom in my heart. Verse 14, so David sent messengers to Ishbosheth. Whoa, wait a minute, see what he just did? He's talking with Abner. And the back and forth between David and Abner is, I want Michal, my wife, but now David undercuts Abner, sidesteps him, goes direct to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife Michal, whom I was betrothed, for whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now, wouldn't that look nice on a little counted cross stitch plaque? <laughs> Married for a hundred foreskins. I mean, can you even imagine and you may recall the story. This is what David did. Saul said, I'll give you my daughter. And then David said, I'll, I'll, I'll take her and, and I'll go get 104 skins of Philistines. The whole point was they were uncircumcised heathen, right? 
And he went and fought the battle. He brought back, literally brought back, I don't know who carried that little bag, but brought back 104 skins of Philistines and gave it to Saul and, and won Michal as his wife. This is how their marriage began. Gross. But David is playing this smart. He is undercutting Abner. He's going straight to Ishbosheth. Verse 15. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband. Her husband? Yeah. When David fled Saul, Saul gave Michal to a guy named Paltiel. So now she's married to someone else. Even though she was never divorced from David, it is messy in this house. So he took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Baharim. Baharim, by the way, uh, Baharim, I wrote that down somewhere. It means village of the young men. So Baharim would be kind of like the YMCA, YMCA of the land, right? Village of the young men. And so he follows her that far, and then Abner turns around and says to him, go return. So he returned. This guy's a wimp. Michal, he doesn't fight for her. He doesn't say, you're not taking my wife. He weeps and he whines and he moans and he follows after. He's weak. Ishbosheth is weak. They're both spineless wimps. Paltiel, by the way, means God delivers. Where's the deliverance here, Paltiel? Abner stands up to him firmly and he just turns around and he shuffles off home. But you know what? All the while, God's promises are yet being fulfilled, not by these guys, but in spite of these guys. The kingdom is, is going to be established in spite of the messes that are made on the way by all these people who are supposed to just trust in the Lord. Second thing to note, kingdom way principle. Chaos, confusion, and conflict are not the kingdom way. Now, you probably could have figured that one out. But let's just be clear. Running people over is not the kingdom way. Chaos and confusion are not the kingdom way. And I'm gonna quote two verses I have quoted over and over the last several weeks. And while we were in 1 Samuel, Ephesians 6, 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That is not our fight. Secondly, 2 Corinthians 10, verse three and four, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. We don't fight that way. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What are those weapons? The sword of the word of God. That is just simply speaking the truth. The spirit of God. Faith in the Lord. Love. We fight with these things. We don't get face to face, head to head, fighting the way the world fights. You ever find yourself fighting with flesh in the spiritual battle? If you're finding, find yourself doing it that way, I, I don't know if I've told you the story, but years ago, I remember, I just lost, I was a high school student. Mission Viejo High School, I'm sitting in the band room with a guy, and I'm thinking, I'm all hyped up and excited about a, a recent Bible study I had just been in, and I, I had to go save the world, and so I'm talking to this guy. By the way, he was a Baptist, but, you know, he didn't go to my church. <laughs> So he wasn't part of my fellowship and I was trying to convert him to what was true and right. High school, cut me some slack. But we were getting all into it and, and just had this, two Christian guys having this raging debate. I looked like such an idiot. I stomped out of there so angry. I was fighting in the flesh. And it was friendly fire. I was fighting someone, you know, a, a comrade in the flesh. That's not how we fight. And, and we don't create 
confusion and chaos. We don't fight with, with the tools of, of anger and vitriol and meanness and hard-hearted. That, that's not how we fight. We bring the love of God. We bring the grace and mercy of Jesus. We speak the truth, but we don't do it to condemn. We do it because we love. And we love because he first loved us, right? You, you all may be aware of this, many of you. Romans chapter seven, verse 22. I love how Paul says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I think God's word is right. His law is spot on. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul says, Paul, the great missionary, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of death? And, and a lot of Christians stay, we've said this before, they stay in Romans 7, in that chapter. Man, I want to do the right thing, but I always do the wrong thing. And every time I want to do the right thing, the wrong thing is what comes out. And he ends the whole thing saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Sounds pretty despairing. Until he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. I believe in the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, I'm serving the law of sin. And then he says this, and it is the hope of everyone who stands before Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's one of the greatest things Paul was ever inspired to write. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the kingdom way is not a way of condemnation. It is not my role to condemn this world. It is my role to love and to bring the truth of the gospel with that love. So back to David, God's gonna get it all done. He's gonna get it done in us even when we're wretched like Paul was feeling because God's word doesn't fail I failed, but his word does not fail. And just remember, when we, when we fight flesh with flesh, we invite chaos. We engender confusion and conflict. We make molehills into mountains into volcanoes. That's what I said at staff today. Take a little problem and we build it up to a big thing and then it just explodes. And that's what the flesh does. That, that is not our way to the kingdom. And by the way, in all this, don't forget there is a spiritual enemy whose basic blueprint is steal, kill, destroy. That's all he is up to. It's all he wants to do. And so he wants to run people over and he wants to sow chaos and confusion and conflict. That's what he does, but those are not the kingdom way. Verse 17. Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, so his own people, saying, in times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. My goodness, he knows this. He has always known this. But this is what we call political expediency. This is the time where he says, okay, we can do this, and this is gonna be good for me. Abner also spoke, verse 19, in the hearing of Benjamin, and in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. All the tribes are together in this. He goes to take this message now down to David in Hebron. Here's the deal. We're with you, man. Verse 20, 
Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, let me arise and go gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Do you know what's missing out of this peace agreement from Abner? Repentance. Repentance. He's not sorry for being opposed to the very will of God. He's not sorry for setting up Ishbosheth as king over Israel. He's not sorry for the lives that were lost. You may recall in the last chapter, chapter two, he's not sorry for the 12 guys from Israel who fought the 12 guys from Judah and they all stuck their swords into each other and all 24 died. He's not sorry for that. He's not sorry for the battle that resulted in Asahel's death, the guy who was chasing him down. He's not sorry for the conflicts of the past seven and a half years of civil war. No word about that, just, hey, time to make, make nice. And so big-headed Abner comes along thinking, I'll, I'll be the power player that makes for this peace. And behold, the servants, verse 22, of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Are you getting that? Three times. This phrase is repeated, he went in peace. He has gone in peace. He went away in peace. This is all showing exactly what was established between David and Abner, that David gave him immunity. Immunity. Joab came to the king. So Joab is David's, you know, fighting man. He's also David's nephew, if, if you remember that. He came to the king and he said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you? Why then have you sent him away and he's already gone? You know Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out all that you are doing. Man, Joab is ticked. He's really mad because Abner killed his brother. Asahel. That's where the anger and vitriol is coming from. And he doesn't trust Abner because he's on the other side of this civil war. He's fighting for the other team. You know what? Joab may be right. He may be right in as much as Abner is not doing this for David and for Israel. Abner's doing it for Abner. So he may be correct about that, but Joab is about to do something that, again, this is not the kingdom way. Number three, taking matters into our own hands is not the kingdom way. And Joab is about to do it. Watch this. Verse 26, when Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know. You might wanna underscore that. David is not aware of this secret plan. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab calls out, sends for Abner, says, come back, come back, we, we gotta talk. So Abner returned to Hebron and Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately and there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Joab just committed murder. He kills Abner in, in cold blood. 
We are told again in verses 21, 22, and 23 that Abner went off in peace. He had immunity from David. He was granted peace, safe passage by the king. It's the only thing that explains why Abner would come back to Hebron to meet with the brother of the man who had died at his hands. He comes back thinking, I've got immunity. It's fine. Davis puts it this way. He says, he never saw Joab's dagger until it was too late. It was concealed behind David's promise. This is underhanded. And by taking matters into his own hands, Joab makes a mess of this peace treaty. Think about what's happening politically. Civil war is done. Abner just has to go back and tell the leaders of Israel, David's got his men. We're gonna bring this kingdom together. David's gonna be the king. It's all good. And Joab takes the leader of Israel, the real leader, and murders him. How do you think that's gonna play on the ground? That's not gonna help anyone's campaign. He killed Abner because Abner killed Asahel. But Abner killed Asahel, remember this, in battle, during war. This was fight. He was running actually away from Asahel. This happened back in chapter two. He's running and he's calling behind him, leave me alone, back off, man. And Asahel will not back off. Twice he tells him to back off. He won't do it. Finally, Abner takes his sword, thrusts backwards, And I don't know that he even intended to kill him because it's the butt end of the sword that he thrusts. I think he's just hoping to knock the guy off his balance so he can keep running. What happens? The butt end of the sword goes through Asahel and he dies on the spot. But there's a difference because that was in war and what Joab did was murdering cold blood. Joab's out for revenge. And you know where he did it? In Hebron one of the three cities of refuge on the western side of the Jordan River. One of those cities you could run to if you were being accused of murder yourself, you could run to and find safe haven in Hebron, but it was there in the gate of Hebron that Joab kills Abner. David has a problem. David's got a lot of problems in these couple of chapters. People all around him who are doing stupid, brutish things What's he gonna do? How's he gonna fix this? Now he has to go to great lengths to prove to all Israel he didn't have anything to do with this. This was not his order, the death of Abner. So watch this, verse uh, 28. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab, and on all his father's house, and may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge, (laughs) or one who is a leper, or one who takes hold of the distaff. I'll explain that. Or one who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. He's saying, man, I hope things go bad. He's actually leveling a curse, if you will, on the house of Joab that there's gonna be leprosy in the house and and may there be people with discharges that is unclean in the house and people who fall by the sword and lack bread and one who takes hold of a distaff, what does that mean? It's a spindle. A distaff is a spindle for weaving. Girly men, that's what David is saying, that may there be wimps in this house, men with spindles for weaving sticks, knitting needles instead of a warrior's spear. David is trying to separate now himself from the the brutish murder of Joab 
against Abner. And then he makes Joab eat some serious memorial crow. Watch this. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner. Oh, okay, now we find out both of David's living nephews are in on this murder. Joab and Abishai killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gabeon. But verse 31, then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. David's strong here. Can you imagine Joab? I'm not gonna do that. This is the guy who killed my brother. He got what was coming to him. No, 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 no. You're gonna do exactly what I say. You are gonna mourn and you are gonna weep before this man that you killed. And King David walked behind the bier. By the way, this is the first actual funeral memorial that we see recounted in the Bible. First time we see the whole memorial service out before us. Thus they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. The king, this is David, chanted a lament for Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen and all the people wept again over him. Get that, he just called Joab and Abishai wicked. And then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day, but David vowed, saying, may God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. So David is mourning, so David is honoring Abner, and David is fasting through the day. Verse 36, now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, or literally it was good in their eyes, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day it had not been the will of the king of David to put Abner the son of Ner to death. And then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? Now, now note this, remember, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel were all three brothers, all three the nephews of David. David's nephew Asahel was killed by Abner in that battle. And now Joab and Abishai, his other two nephews, kill Abner. And David does something remarkable. He stands for Abner, a political power player from the north. And yet he honors him in his death. He does it with integrity, with a right heart. He does it before all the people. He commands Joab the murderer and Abishai the murderer. You guys are gonna be right at the front of the morning. You guys are gonna be weeping for him. And because David does this, the people come to him. Now, if you're cynical, you could just say, wow, what a politician. <laughs> that was the right move. But David had the right heart. This wasn't just a political move. It was the right thing to do. And we hear it in his voice. In verse 39, he says, I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too difficult for me, may the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Sons of Zeruah, Joab, and Abishai. David says, I am, I am, these guys are exhausting me. I, I'm fed up with this. I'm tired of this today. I am weak 
They are too difficult. By the way, that word weak, I, I, I check this out because if you're reading the, the English standard version, it reads a little differently. It says, I was gentle today, they were brutes. I was gentle today, they were harsh. That's, that's the way the ESV interprets that. And it's possible that that's exactly what David is saying here. I am gentle and tender, but they were acting with harshness and they're a difficulty for me. You know what? Fourth principle, you don't always get to choose nor control those who walk with you along the kingdom way. You don't always get to choose and control who walks alongside you. Joab fought for David. Joab was at the head of David's armies. He would, in the next chapter, or in chapter five, he's gonna become commander for something brilliant that he does. But David has to deal with this guy. He has to deal with Abishai. He's got to deal with foolishness all around him, with people taking matters into their own hands. David didn't get to choose them. They were there. They, they came to him. David couldn't control them, though he's king. He can't control them, and neither can you. You can't control what someone else is going to do. You ever got in trouble for something someone else did because you happen to be the dad or the mom or you happen to be in charge of this group of people or you happen to be the one who was there, guilt by association? You can't control what other people are gonna do. Christian or non-Christian, you, you can't control it. That's, that's the deal. On the way to the kingdom, self-control is hard enough, much less trying to control others and that's why in the church and without, grace is essential. I can't control what other people are gonna do. And sometimes they're gonna do stupid things. So what do I do? Kick them out? Kill them? Remove them? I can't control. But I can direct. I can lead by example. I can love. I can reveal once again the weapons of our warfare, this word, prayer. The Spirit of God. We can all be like David. We can, be, we can either be weak or we can be gentle. Weak or meek. Jesus wasn't weak, but Jesus was meek. We can be difficult or harsh like Joab and Abishai. And sometimes you just gotta deal with this reality. The sons of wickedness are still in the ranks. We talked about this last week, so I won't spend time on it. Tares among the wheat, Right? even within churches, even within the kingdom, and we've been over and over this, but we keep seeing examples of this. People who are on your side, supposed to be fighting with you, do dumb stuff that makes it bad for you. And that's what David has to deal with here. So you don't get to choose who walks beside you. You don't get to choose or control what they do. Now, two more brutes are gonna come up with a wicked plan to further the kingdom on their end. Watch this in chapter four, verse one. Now when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all Israel was disturbed. So now the fallout's starting to make its way throughout. They have the funeral and all that, but, but Israel's disturbed. They're worried. Abner, our great commander, our True might is dead. There's no one to pull the puppet strings anymore. And Ishbosheth, man, his heart, he lost courage, it says. Literally, his hands dropped. I love the Hebrew. It, it's so picturesque. His hands dropped. What? Oh, 
He didn't know what to do. Who's gonna tell me what to do? Who's gonna help me to lead? Who's gonna pull my strings? And the fear now up in Israel is if David is on a tear, Abner's dead, is he gonna send his cronies and henchmen to the north to kill all the leadership? Is David gonna come in, rushing in as a brute and, and fight? And besides the fact that Abner was Israel's only real hope, to bring some kind of unity with Judah and avoid a further war. So we have two men. I'm giving you all that background, that mentality, because two men are gonna form a brute squad with an evil idea to bring a peace offering to try and fix the situation that was not theirs to fix. Verse two, Saul's son had two men who were commanders of the bands. The name of the one was Baanah, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Ramon the Berotite of the sons of Benjamin, for Berot was considered part of Benjamin and the Berotites fled to Gitaim and they have been aliens there to this day. So that's kind of an aside, just saying where these guys had come from. And then suddenly we have an interruption to this new part of the narrative and it's verse four, which simply is an aside. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son. Jonathan had a son. So Ishbosheth is not the only heir, not the only living relative of Saul. There's another you know, it's like Yoda saying, no, there is another. <laughs> Saul had a son, Jonathan, who had a son whose name you may recall. He was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan's death came up from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled and it happened in her hurry to flee that he fell and became lame and his name was Mephibosheth. So we got little lame Mephibosheth and the whole reason why verse four is kind of stuck in here to interrupt the story is to explain why at this time the only other living male relative was not a candidate for the king. He's not a viable candidate because he is disabled. So he, he would be unable to fill that post, at least from the mentality back then. Verse five, so back to these two sons of Ramon, the Biratite, Rahab and Bayana. They departed and they came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat and they struck him in the belly and Rahab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. They struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and on his descendants. They must have missed the news alert. You know? They, they, they didn't hear the story about an Amalekite who came to David with Saul's crown and, and Saul's bracelet, claiming to have killed Saul himself. And what David did, you killed the king, you're dead. And he had him executed. So they must not have heard that story because these two morons decide that what needs to happen is we need to kill Ishbosheth and bring his head to David, and then we'll have a place in his council. We'll get something out of this for the new kingdom. Verse nine, David answered Rahab and Baanah, his brother, sons of Ramon the Beeratite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, 
who has redeemed my life from all distress. Let me just pause there and say that could be David's theme verse. What he says here, and he says it in passing as he's going on to to react to what they've done, but he says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. See, that's faith. That's trusting in the blueprint of God that you haven't seen. As the Lord lives, who delivers my life from all distress. He knows the distresses. He knows when they're happening. He knows before they happen. He knows when they're gonna come. And he's the one who delivers me from them. So I'm gonna trust him. David says, Verse 10, when one told me, saying, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, the Amalekite, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron, but they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it in the grave of Abner there in Hebron. <laughs> it's just, why doesn't Hollywood do more of these stories? This is great, you know? I mean, this is just, it's brutal. But this is what really happened. Why do they cut off their hands and feet, though? Come on. I understand, I mean, this is execution for the, for the murder of an innocent. So even by Torah law, capital punishment was legit. And David, in his role as king, had the right to call for their execution, just as he had the Amalekite. And whether you agree with capital punishment today or not, this was Jewish law. This, it was legit. So David had the right to have them executed, but the cutting off of the hands and the feet, what is that all about? Proverbs 6, verse 16, tells us there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him, which you Bible students know, number seven is the worst. There are six things he hates. The seventh is the worst. Here they are. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and then number seven, seven, uh, seven, one who spreads strife among brothers. That's the worst. God hates strife. He hates when people stir up division and hurt each other. That, that is not the kingdom way. That's a free point, by the way. But that's not the kingdom way. Their hands committed murder, shed innocent blood. Their feet ran to tell the news of their evil. So they cut off their hands and their feet. And it was a direct response to what they had done. Again, it's a just punishment. But here at the end of chapter four, and we're gonna stop there for tonight. Here at the end of this chapter, you gotta ask the question, why does Joab get off scot-free? You know, the Amalek in the previous chapter was killed because he claimed to murder Saul. Uh, these two guys did kill Ishbosheth, had his head, and so David called for their execution. And we could say it was just by Torah law. It was a judgment that was fair and legitimate. However, what about Joab who committed murder in the city of refuge? Why isn't David calling for his execution? Well, patience, he will. On his deathbed, 
David will advise his son Solomon to be sure that Joab is executed. It, it is said that the justice of God, the wheels of God's justice move slowly, but grind thoroughly. The amazing thing about God's justice is he always leaves time for people to repent. He always gives time for a change of heart. He doesn't immediately call for that. And in Joab's case, he does live out his life. But apparently there is no heart change and David will tell Solomon, this guy's gotta go. We'll talk about that when we get there. But let's, let's review what's not the kingdom way. Number one, if it runs people over, it's not the kingdom way. Number two, if it's chaos and confusion, Conflict, it's not the kingdom way. Number three, taking matters into my own hands, it's not the kingdom way. Number four, I don't get to choose or control those who walk along with me. That is not the kingdom way. One more, the final one. Um, this whole story, chapters three and four, as we go through it and we read it, it's a long civil war. It's describing some aspects of this seven and a half year civil war. But it all can teach us one final principle. Number five, the kingdom is not taken by force. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, and it's a verse that has been misquoted and misused. Matthew 11, verse 12 says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus is talking. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. It doesn't mean we should forcefully take the kingdom as it's been mistranslated. We stand, yes. We fight, yes. We run the race, absolutely. But Luke 16, 16, Jesus says it again. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John and since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. The kingdom is not taken by force. We don't force the kingdom. Well, what do we do? We receive it. Bless, paralambano. Lambano is that Greek word. We receive the kingdom. We don't force it. We don't make it happen. We receive it. Opposition, schemes, political power plays, revenge, and even brute stupidity are all present in chapters three and four. But you know what? In spite of all of that human mess, God still establishes the kingdom in chapter five, which we won't do tonight. David is anointed king. The kingdom is established. Why? Not because of any of this mess, but because the Lord said it would be. Because God said he was going to do it. And his promises are never thwarted even by stupid human tricks. And we see all of this. Abners can stand against or worse, politicize the kingdom. Joabs can lure and kill the unsuspecting. Bayanas and Rahabs can murder weaklings at nap time. Herods can cut off the head of John the Baptist. And Romans can even crucify the Christ. But you know what? The kingdom cannot be stopped. Kingdom's coming. God said he would do it, and God is going to do it. And even today, when we, from a, a Christian vantage point, look around and, and 
it seems hopeless, truly hopeless to even imagine that the nations and global leaders of this world would conform to the meekness and righteousness of Jesus. How can this happen? How can the world governments conform to Jesus? We can't make it happen. You know what? At a time yet future that is even more implausible than what we see right now, Revelation eleven fifteen says, the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And when we get to Revelation, Lord willing, in November, we'll talk about when that happens. But at this point in severe tribulation, this declaration resounds and the kingdom of darkness is done. And God will begin to move on this world. And Jesus at that point will have been taken, will will have taken full control. He will take the reins. But we don't force it. And we don't make it happen. That's kingdom now theology and it is wrong. You don't force the kingdom. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4, 6. That verse is in play today just as it was then. And until the kingdom comes, we, for our part, we stand with grace, we stand on the truth, but we do so from the perspective of love and we pray with Jesus himself, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us tonight. And I just pray that you will make application wherever necessary. Lord, we all deal with these things. In fact, Father, we have all been people who have been surrounded at times by those who have done things that messed it up for us. And truth be told, Lord, we have all been people who were messing it up for someone else. So, Father, I I just say forgive us for that. Forgive us when we take matters into our own hands. Forgive us when we misrepresent the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Forgive us, Father, when we don't express the grace and the love of our Savior in the way that you did to us. And may we, Lord, be receivers, recipients of the kingdom. Your word tells us we're receiving a a kingdom. You said it, Jesus, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father wants to give you the kingdom. Father, we're receivers. And so we just ask that you will give us the grace and the mercy to show the love of Christ to each other and to this world until your kingdom comes in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That's the kingdom way. Receive the kingdom. Mm -hmm.